evening. Great to be in the house of the Lord tonight. Trevor's just mad at me because I, I got him tonight because he mentioned something about doing announcements for me. And I was like, you want me to do announcements for you, right? Because you're teaching. And he was like, no, <laughs> you're teaching, right? <laughs> so anyway, well, welcome to our midweek study. It is so great just being here, opening the word of God with you this morning. I had to reconstruct a foot surgically and kind of a big, hard case, you know, and that really cuts into your sleep. I'm just worried about the alarm clock not going off and like if something happens and I wake up late, then trying to get in there and catch up on something like that would be tough. So, and then I was also very excited to come in and, and share the word of God. So in Proverbs 25, so looking forward to that. So tonight will be a restful night. I'm looking forward to this though, to this teaching. This will, it, it, every Wednesday night is just a, a blessing coming here in the middle of the week. Even though it's a short week, still, it's, it's uh, just so nice coming here and having a little refresher course. So if you want to open up to Proverbs 25, please, and I'll pray. Uh, Lord, we thank you and praise you and ask for your, just for your help on the study tonight. Lord, please bless it as we seek to understand your word. Father, we just pray that it would be a blessing and an edifying experience, Lord, where we could take a few things home and apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm just going to read Proverbs 25 pretty quickly, just so we have plenty of time for the study, and, uh, and also because we have men's prayer tonight. I'll be mindful of the time. These also are the Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, copied. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings is to search out a matter. As the heavens for height and the earth for, earth for depth, so the heart of kings is unsearchable. Take away the dross from silver, and it will go to the silversmith for jewelry. Take away the wicked from before the king, and his throne will be established in righteousness. Do not exalt yourself in the presence of the king, and do not stand in the place of the great, for it is better that he say to you, come up here, than you should be put lower in the presence of the prince, whom your eyes have seen. Do not go hastily to court, for what will you do in the end when your neighbor has put you to shame? Debate your case with your neighbor, and do not disclose the secret to another, lest he who hears it expose your shame, and your reputation be ruined." A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and settings of silver, like an earring of gold and an ornament of fine gold is a wise rebuke to an obedient ear. Like the cold of snow in time of harvest is the faithful messenger to those who send him, for he refreshes the soul of his masters. Whoever falsely boasts of giving is like clouds and wind without rain. By long forbearance, a ruler is persuaded and a gentle tongue breaks a bone. Have you found honey? Eat only as much as you need, lest you be filled with it and vomit. Seldom set your foot in your neighbor's house, lest to become wary of you and hate you. A man who bears false witness against his neighbor is like a club, a sword, and a sharp arrow. Confidence in an unfaithful man in a time of trouble is like a bad tooth and a foot out of joint. Like one who takes away a garment in cold weather, and like vinegar on soda is one who sings songs to a heavy heart. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat, and if he is thirsty, give him water to drink, for so you will heap uh, coals of fire on his head, and the Lord will reward you. The north wind brings forth rain and a backbiting tongue and an angry countenance. It is better to dwell in the corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a contentious woman. As cold water to a weary soul, so is good news from a far country. A righteous man who falters before the wicked is like a murky spring in a polluted well. It is not good to eat much honey, so to seek one's glory is not glory. Whoever has no rule over his his own spirit is like a city broken down, without walls. Let's just pray one more time. Lord, we again thank you for this word, Father, and it's your word that we want to exalt and and learn from. So we thank you again in Jesus' name. Amen. 
All right, so we are continuing the Proverbs study. We are closing in on, on finishing that, but um, it's, it's going great overall. Just a few more chapters to go, and we will probably wrap it up over the summer, but, um, but we have some other discipleship things as well. But Proverbs 25 is a collection of words of Solomon, but these were compiled by the men of Hezekiah almost 300 years later. Verses 1 through 7 pertain to kings, it is the glory of God, of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings is to search out a matter. As Merrill Unger stated so eloquently, he reveals only enough of his blessed nature and purposes for faith to rest upon, for he is obligated to none to render an account of his ways. So we'll come back to this, to this point if we have time, and we'll do a little bit of uncovering on our own. Verse 3, as the heavens for height and the earth for depth, so the heart of a king is, king's is unsearchable. And we know that the, the role of a king or a leader, it should be a noble position. And, and theoretically, if a king or a leader or queen is seeking the Lord, uh, we just have to be careful in being too critical just because he or she has weighty matters of state and, and we're not in their position weighing the different things that they may be wearing, you know, that they may be weighing. So we have to be careful, but at the same time, as we've seen even over the last couple of years, many leaders have been exposed for their hypocrisy during COVID. Uh, These often distinguish themselves as self-serving rather than attempting to be a true representative of the Lord. So I think all of us have a little bit of a, uh, uh, you know, a little less respect for some of these leaders, but the the king is put there by the Lord as well. So we just have to be careful in judgment of them. Uh, verses 4 through 5, take away the dross from silver, and it will go to the silversmith for jewelry. Take away the wicked from before the king, and his throne will be established in righteousness. And you see this throughout the Bible. You see this in type with Solomon, for example, where he is setting up his throne in righteousness, and he really cleans house not only with his enemies, including his own brother, but even enemies of his father, David, as well. So you see kind of some of the remaining enemies being taken out. You also see it in type with Joshua entering the promised land where Joshua comes in and the people of Israel, they go in and they take over the land. And it's a full conquering. It's to the point where Joshua is actually putting his feet on the necks of other kings, making it very clear who's in charge and who's doing the conquering. And so we see this in the Bible and we'll see the ultimate fulfillment when Jesus comes back as well to set up his kingdom. There's going to be a lot of wicked and a lot of evildoers that he is going to, uh, you know, end up, they're going to end up being destroyed if they choose not to repent, and apparently a lot of people won't. So here is a question, and this is something I'm going to, I'm going to um, borrow a method from Pastor Tim where he sometimes includes things not in his notes, and I'm going to do the same thing. This isn't in my notes. I was kind of debating it, but uh, I love apologetics. So if you guys have two minutes for apologetics, hopefully this will be something that's useful to you, but... Uh, the question would be, suppose you're speaking to an atheist or someone who really doesn't know, know the Lord or, or an atheist who is really against the Lord and looking to try to, you know, try to um, you know, find reasons not to believe the Bible. And this, this happened to me about three months ago. I did a debate with an atheist, and it was kind of an informal podcast, and we're going to do other ones as well, but it was with an atheist and so, and I had no idea what to expect. I had no questions or anything, just kind of went in there like, sure, we'll talk about whatever you want. I was, I was actually happy to have an audience. And so, um, so we were, so he was shooting a bunch of questions at, at me and I answered them as best I could. And then 
And then he asked about this sort of thing, about well, how right is it for Israel to go in and conquer the land and just destroy all these people? And so we kind of had a little back and forth about that. Well, I was kind of like, well, other people did it to Israel for one thing. And then I should have given the correct answer, and I didn't. I blanked. And the reason why was because at my office the day before, somebody brought in a whole box of these delicious chocolate treats. And I don't sleep well when I eat chocolate. So I think it was placed there by the hand of Satan himself, where I couldn't (laughs) resist. So I didn't sleep that night. So when we were talking during the discussion, I just lost my train of thought. We were kind of talking, and then I was like, at the end of it, I think, or, or even after we finished, I was like, I forgot, you know, I apologize for, for getting where I was going, and it was a good answer. So, but then taking a negative, turning it to a positive, I emailed him, and I was like, oh, next time, you know, I want to answer that question, because I have an answer, and it's a, it's a great question, and it is a fair question. Why would a loving God come in and destroy a people, or, or eliminate a people? And the answer is, is actually simple, and it's from the Bible. So just so this is on your preparation, and that way you don't have to think about it. But remember in the Old Testament, when the Lord was sending the children of Israel in, he warned them. He said, this isn't because of your righteousness. It's because of the sins of the people and the things that they're doing that I'm sending you in. But then later, he, re, you know, he reminded them as well. He said, he said, and don't forget, if you adopt their ways, the same thing is going to happen to you. So he gave them very stern warnings. And so the warning is, and the answer to someone like that is, that you know, the Lord is long-suffering and he wants all people to come to repentance, but there is a time and a measure for judgment to be poured out. And you know, certain people, they had reached the point where their sin was full. They were sacrificing their own young, young and doing abominable things. And eventually the Lord used Israel to come in and judge them. But then they adopted the pagan ways and then they themselves were, were punished as well. And some of the same things are happening in this country as well. So it's a warning for everyone, but that's an answer to your atheist friend. And by the way, that, I kind of dropped the ball on that one. And, but afterward, he said, you really had an answer for everything. And, and you just, you've studied and you really had an answer. And his girlfriend was around the corner listening as well. And so they were, they were both like, you really had an answer. So it does make a difference in, as far as apologetics and having an answer because he had some really good questions. I'm doing Proverbs 30 as well, and there will actually be more examples from that discussion then because I learned a lot. Like, what, what exactly are you thinking and, and how, you know, what's your thought process behind a lot of this stuff? So in Proverbs 30, we'll actually hit more of that, more examples. But there's one that, that's one that I wanted to bring up here just because it's, it's definitely on my heart and I want to get together with him. And he's got, uh, I guess he has a, a ring of atheists and their po- own podcasts and stuff like that. So this one I think was kind of more of a trial run, but I, I love that kind of thing myself. So anyway, so verses six through seven, do not exalt yourself in the presence of the king and do not stand in the place of the great, for it is better that he say to you, come up here, than you should be put in lower in the presence of the prince whom your eyes have seen. So no doubt your minds, go to, your minds go to Luke 14 verses 7 through 11 where Jesus tells a parable after he notices the people seeking the best seats for themselves. He says, when you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down at the, in the best place lest one or more honorable than you be invited by him and he who invited you and come and say to you, give place to this man. And then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit down in the lowest place so that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, go up higher. 
Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And we know this is true of Jesus particularly, who would humble himself to the point of death on the cross and then be exalted. And when you're reading the Proverbs and the Scriptures, just in general, it's amazing how the same pattern repeats itself again and again, where you see you see these historical examples, so you see it happening as historical examples, and that's to benefit benefit us. And then you see, you know, there's present day application to benefit us, and then also future or eschatological application to benefit us as well. And also notice it applies to individuals, but also corporately, churches, nations, however you want to look at it. A few examples you, that you can notice, the biblical and hi- historical examples where someone attempted to elevate themselves and then they would be painfully humbled or disposed of, like Haman, for example, attempted to humble him, or to exalt himself. Absalom exalted himself, Jezebel. All of them ended up being humbled. The Bible has a lot of examples of that. Even some of the good ones that I just read recently, uh, Jacob deceived his father by goat skins, and he himself would be deceived by his sons with the blood of a goat. And so Jacob had to go through a humbling period as well. And Rachel as well, she took her father's, which is Laban, she took his household items, possibly to elevate the status of her house, although some scholars think she might have done it to bring bad fortune on her father. But in either case, she resorted to stealing and then having to lie about it. And interestingly, Jacob pronounces judgment and actually prophesies, let the man who has the idols die. And some scholars also think this may be why Rachel suffered a premature death as well. But hard to say for sure, but it is interesting just that that principle that Jesus talks about and here in Proverbs 25 happens again and again. It'll be seen even in the, we saw it in the example of Esther, which is actually a, a sort of a, an end times eschatological example as well, meaning in the book of Esther, we see Queen Vashti where she dishonors the king. We don't know why. She may have had good reasons for dishonoring the king, but whatever happens there, it says in Esther 1.19, and let the king give her royal estate unto another that is better than she. So in the future, we'll see Jesus who will be dishonored by the largely Gentile church, and then Jesus will eventually turn his attention back to the Jews who are typified by Esther. And we see that attitude in Laodicea as well, where the church of Laodicea says, I am rich and become wealthy. And we also see it in the final end-time harlot church. Revelation 18.7 says, I sit as a queen and no widow and will not see sorrow. So she exalts herself living in luxury, but then she'll be judged as well. And that that judgment comes just before the marriage supper of the Lamb, as we see in Revelation 19. So moving on, verses 8 through 10, these are somewhat self-explanatory, just to summarize them in the interest of time. Um, It's simply to try to resolve a dispute without a third party to have to mediate for you. So verse 9 says, debate your case with your neighbor, bringing in a third party invites gossip, backbiting, and the ruling may go unfavorably towards you as well. And we know Jesus talks about this, and Paul also speaks to believers not relying on secular courts, not only that, but not misrepresenting the church by bringing petty cases of self-interest before the secular courts. So verses 11 through 15, these verses describe the effect of a good word. Verses 11 and 12 say it takes a humble heart to receive a word of correction, but we all need that from time to time. That's part of discipleship. And it talks about a word fitly spoken 
and everyone would agree that that's good. And there's really three ways that this applies. Number one, just like Pastor Tim spoke on Sunday, is not speaking unless absolutely necessary, and you're sure that the Holy Spirit would have you bring correction to another person. So we want to be careful not to be the hypocrite and just criticize people just to be critical and and because we like hearing ourselves talking, we need to make sure the Holy Spirit is guiding us to bring correction to a person. Number two is speaking when necessary. So again, this is a word fitly spoken. We, there's different ways that this can apply. So speaking when necessary, it can be a sin not to speak as well. So if there is something that needs to be addressed, then it has to be addressed tactfully, of course, but it does need to be addressed because of if you're silent on that, then that is, can be sinful as well, and it's not helping your brother or your sister out. So if there is a brother or sister committing a sin, you're in the place to correct them. It does need to be said. It could be a spouse, it could be a child, it could be a brother or a sister here in the church. We all need that accountability. And the third way that this can apply is if you're on the receiving end. Most of us bristle at the idea of correction it's just part of our nature, but it is helpful to think, was that actually a wise rebuke? That, that might have actually been something from the Lord that I should listen to and pay attention to and, and try to apply. So rather than bristling, hopefully the Holy Spirit would kind of lead us to listen and at least evaluate and, and see, if, um, you know, see if there's some truth to it. So again, a word fitly spoken is all part of discipleship and should be measured. Verses 13 through 15, all of these deal with the use of the tongue. Verse 13, like the cold in, of snow in time of harvest is a faithful messenger to those who send him, for he refreshes the soul of his masters. Whoever falsely boasts of giving is like clouds and wind without rain. By long forbearance, a ruler is persuaded and a gentle tongue breaks the bone. You can tie this in with verse 25 as well, as cold water to a weary soul so is good news from a far country. Again, there are a lot of examples of this. Nehemiah chapter 2 says, this is Nehemiah speaking when he returned to Jerusalem. He says, So I went up in the night by the valley, and I viewed the wall, and then I turned back and entered by the valley gate, and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the others who did the work. Then I said to them, you see the distress that we are in now, how Jerusalem lies waste, and its gates are burned with fire. Come and let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them of the hand of my God, which had been good upon me, and also of the king's words that he had spoken to me. So they said, let us rise up and build. Then they set their hands to this good work. So Nehemiah comes back to Jerusalem. Everyone is despondent there. He comes back and tells them that the, nope, the Lord is with us. Keep going and keep building. And so that's exactly what happens. They said, let's go, let's, let's rise up and build, and they, they put their hands to it. In the New Testament, we have the birth of the Messiah by the shepherds and the wise men, and of course, he is risen. All of these things are good news to God's people, but there is an interesting phenomenon how it can be good news to God's people, but it's bad news to people who don't regard the things of the Lord where, for example, the Nehemiah example, he's, it's bad news to the enemies trying to stop the rebuilding. So Sanballat and all the people that were opposing the Jews' rebuilding, it was bad news that Nehemiah had come and they were rebuilding again. The birth of the Messiah was also received as bad news. Matthew 2, 3 says, When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And then when Jesus rose again, 
that was all taken as bad news for the religious leaders, Pilate, Herod, and, and everyone as well. The return of Jesus, incidentally, will be the best news to us that fear the Lord and the worst news to those dwelling on the earth who have rejected him. So it's interesting how relative that is. Verse 16, have you found honey? Eat only as much as you need, lest you be filled with it and vomit. So what this means is not to overindulge on the things that are lawful. So there are plenty of things that are pleasurable and they're actually lawful to do. But Solomon here is saying, but still, you don't want to overindulge on them. So it's not necessarily sin, but even these things can end up controlling you as well. Food, entertainment, technology, all of these things. I'm guilty of this. And one thing that I had been kind of stuck on, I guess, for several years, and I get stuck in my mind, is for some reason I'm thinking that like mountain food is just going to be better. Like I love the mountains in general, probably a lot of us do, but I had in this mind like uh, going to the mountains and they all advertise like farm to table, or, yeah, farm to table, fresh food, and I just have this, this kind of stuck in my mind. It, and it's never worked. I've never been able to go get good food in the mountains. I think about three years ago, or for our three-year anniversary, a patient had told me, I had mentioned we were going to Bath County and He's like, oh, yeah, and there's this restaurant, and they have, like, a chef's garden in the back, and, and um, you can go get food there. And then I think that's when it really started amplifying for me, where I was like, I want to go get that farm table, just fresh, all those, you know, orchards and all that stuff. And it's just never worked. So we went there in Bath County. I think we stayed at that big place, whatever it's, Homestead or whatever it's called. Stayed there, went to the restaurant. They're like, closed this week for vacation. And I was like, of course you're closed. I'm, we're here. So, of course, <laughs> that's the way it seems to be working. So... It's never worked, and it took one of the worst weekends for Jackie and I to make the illusion of this go away. So, like I said, I like to go to the mountains once or twice. We went last October to Charlottesville, so all the rooms were booked except one. I could get one very expensive room at the Hilton Garden Inn up there. That's actually the hotel where Pastor Tim, myself, Pastor Randy, Scott, we would go up and kind of kind of game plan there up, up there off-site and just kind of cut out the distractions and get away a little bit. So that was the only room that I could get, and it was literally in Charlottesville, and that's the only one I could get. So I was like, all right, fine, we'll just do that. So we got to the hotel on a Saturday, kind of Saturday midday, and the kitchen area was closed, and that's where we would go and get, like, breakfasts and had a chef back there making your omelets and all this stuff. That was all closed. So the tables were up on the... The chairs were up on the tables and everything, so I was like, well, that's ominous. So then we... Um, so then that Saturday, we kind of got checked in and everything, and then we... I had found one of the little flyers for one of the restaurants that had the farm-to-table thing that put it in my head that that's what I really had to have. So we don't have cell phones or anything, so we map-quested it from there, and got to downtown UVA, it's actually in the downtown area, so we got there at 2.30 and they closed at 2 o'clock. And I was like, what <laughs> restaurant closes at 2 o'clock on a Saturday? So, and then that was just before the elections, that was hostile territory. There were rainbows, there were kind of everything you can imagine, very liberal, pro-abortion, pro-things that, you know, things that contradict the traditional family. So I was just uncomfortable being down there, so I was like, let's get out of here. And so... We went back toward the hotel and tried to eat at another restaurant that we had eaten at before. So we, we pulled up to that, and a waitress came. And it didn't look that good, like the menu, the paper on the wall, on the uh, windows and stuff. So we found a waitress, and she came out excitedly, and she was like, "We open next week." And I was like, "Well, <laughs> in case you haven't noticed, I'm not here next week. I'm here right now." <laughs> 
So I ended up getting a pulled pork sandwich in a styrofoam box, which was not what I had in mind. So that was anything we could have gotten in Richmond. So we, we took our dinners, we went back and ate at the hotel. So in the hotel, then, instead of it being a restful weekend for us, our room ended up being on the second floor, right above a fire pit. And so there were a lot of people congregated right underneath our window at the fire pit. Nobody had masks on. I was like, what happened to all you people being so worried about COVID? So now I'm trying to sleep, and there's a party going on out there. And so I ended up stuffing my ears with wet toilet paper <laughs> and had the pillows over my head and was trying to, trying to block out the noise. So then I got up a little bit before Jackie in the morning and you know, just tired and not, not feeling right. So then I found I couldn't hear out of my left ear. And I was like, what is this? I was trying to pop my ear and, and all that. And I was like, my gosh, it's in there. It's, it's deep in there. And my fingers wouldn't even touch it. It was like a dried, hard toilet paper ball deep in there where my fingers like, weren't even swiping it. So I was like, oh my gosh. So medical things don't bother me at all. There's hardly anything that bothers me. I think I could stitch my own leg. Like I mentioned, I worked on that foot this morning. So medical things don't bother me. But this did. So this was so, so deep in there. I was like, my gosh, Jack, you have to get this thing out. I'm starting to wig out. You need to get that out. So thank the Lord. She did happen to have tweezers where she was able to, to pull it out. And then so that, that was our night. So it was pouring rain as well. And so then we went out and uh, drove around trying to find a tar- farm-to-table play- place open Sunday morning. Couldn't find one. Found a diner right across the street. And it was delicious. It, w- it was just so good. I was just so happy to be there and just tired, pouring rain outside. I think Jackie and I were, were both like this, like with our coffee cup and everything. Sorry. Just, just like head on our hand and everything. And, and uh, so basically, we ended up going back to the hotel. We don't have internet at our house, so all the internet we get is at our office. So we basically went to the hotel office and then we watched YouTube videos on home improvement for the next couple of hours until we had to check out. Just, we're like, not, not taking defeat easily. Everything that I wanted to get up here in the mountains didn't work, so I'll just try to bring that home improvement stuff back and we can live it up at our house. And so we got two hours of video watching and to hopefully, hopefully make some of that stuff happen. So anyway, as you can see, that's how much we care about you. We went to all that trouble just to illustrate this one verse for you. <laughs> that don't do things excessively, even if it's lawful. You don't have to go crazy and spend a fortune on hotel rooms or anything like that, like I did. So verses 17 through 18, um, these both advise treating your neighbor respectfully and not wearing him or her out with your presence, and certainly being uh, in honor not not being a false witness against him. Verses 19 and 20 states, confidence in an unfaithful man in a time of trouble is like a, ble- a bad foot and a foot out of, I'm sorry, a bad tooth and a foot out of joint. So just like you can't count on the unfaithful man in a time of trouble, you don't know when that bad foot or tooth is going to flare up. So seems to be what that's saying. Verse 20, like one who takes away a garment in cold weather, like vinegar on soda, is one who sings songs to a heavy heart. Got to say, we can open the floor up to suggestions on this one. I don't know what, what this is saying. So he says, sounds like taking away a garment in cold weather is bad. Vinegar on soda, I have no idea what that does. And then one who sings songs to a heavy heart, that would be good, I would think. So, so uh, anyway, I didn't see any commentaries or anything that, that really illustrated that. I didn't get to research it a whole lot. 
But um, so that's one of the more, more vague ones there. Verses 21 and 22, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head and the Lord will reward you. Paul quotes this very thing in Romans 12.20, but elaborates on the point in Romans 12.21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So that's Paul's summary point, kind of building on the verse here from Proverbs. 23 and 24, these both again deal with control of the tongue. The north wind brings rain, backbiting an angry tongue, I'm sorry, backbiting tongue and angry countenance. Better to dwell in the corner of a housetop than a shared house, a house shared with a contentious woman. These are fairly self-explanatory. And we'll almost close on verse 26. A righteous man who falters or wavers before the wicked is like a murky spring and a polluted well. And we see many examples of men and women who stood their ground. We see Moses before Pharaoh. We see Nehemiah before Sanballat. Uh, also, we see David before Goliath, Goliath being a type of the Antichrist. As you know, there's a 666 associated with, anti, with Goliath, uh, and his armor bearer is also a type of the false prophet as well. Hezekiah, we see before Sennacherib, we see that he falters at first, but then he actually rebounds. And in 2 Kings 18, we see the invading Assyrian king and the siege of Jerusalem and Sennacherib is a type of the Antichrist as well. He has an officer with him, the Rabshakeh, who is also a type of the false prophet speaking on behalf of Sennacherib. So you see this pattern again and again, Antichrist, false prophet, and they illustrate characteristics of the two. So Hezekiah does well at first, it says in 2 Kings 18, and just remembering this is about the righteous faltering before the, the wicked people, how we're not to do that, just like Moses and David were to stand our ground. And the Lord was with him, and he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and served him not. So at first, everything Hezekiah did, he did really well. He's a great king. I, I just love him. He's one of my favorite kings. Then Hezekiah witnesses the king of Assyria take captive the northern kingdom. He may not have realized that it was appointed by the Lord, because it states in verse 12, because they obeyed not the voice of the Lord. So the northern kingdoms had abandoned the Lord, so they were suffering the judgment appointed to them. And so then Hezekiah falters and he loses heart, which is understandable. So then he agrees to pay 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. In verse 15 it says, So Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. At that time Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the pillars which Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. So here Hezekiah does falter, and he actually plunders the temple, which of course isn't ideal, but I can, it's understandable. I'll, I'll just say that. And, and uh, you know, not being in his shoes, and I've never been seen an invading army quite like that, so I can certainly understand. So Hezekiah tries appeasement. It does work, work for a while, but then he stands his ground against Sennacherib. And so, and then the Lord provides a great deliverance there in Jerusalem and saves him and, and uh, many people there in Jerusalem and Judah. And so uh, we see in the New Testament, the New Testament church did stand fast under Rome, uh, even the martyrdom, but they did stand fast. The church in the last days, persecution will also need to stand fast. So this is an important verse that encourages us to stand our ground as well. So verses 27 and 28, it is not good to eat much honey. We've already established that. 
So to seek one's own glory is not glory. Whoever has no rule over, I'm sorry, whoever has no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down without walls. This ties into one of my pra- favorite Proverbs, Proverbs 16:32. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. So that kind of wraps up the main part of the, of the chapter there. The last section, Proverbs 20, 25:2, is it states again, it's the glory of kings to search out a matter. So we are kings and priests. It's up to us to search out. So we're just going to do a little bit of, of an exercise here and, and just practice this. We're going to uncover who the Messiah is by looking at his bloodlines. And this is something I've just kind of pieced together here recently. It's, it's fascinating. This could be its own study. Looking at the bloodlines of the Messiah is truly just fascinating. And when you, when you think about how you would want to portray someone you would think you would just have the cream of the crop, the nobility, the best people. But really, we see the people that make up the bloodlines of the Messiah are actually some pretty unsavory characters. That's the best way that I can, I can summarize that. So this is just a sampling. Again, this, this could be a whole teaching, but some of it may surprise you as well. We'll go from sort of the, the oldest to, the, to a little bit more recent. But number one is Lot. So that is Abraham's nephew, and he was a Gentile, a Gentile man, Abraham being the first, he was kind of the first, he was a Gentile and then also became a Jew, so Abraham is kind of both. But Lot was his nephew, so you might be thinking, well, Lot really isn't Abraham's direct descendant, so how is he in the bloodline? That's, at least that's what I was thinking. But there is another way for Lot to enter the bloodline of the Messiah, which is that he is the father of the Moabites, and Ruth was a very important Moabite, so Lot actually is in the line of the Messiah directly, not just sort of indirectly being the nephew to Abraham. Lot himself is actually being the father of the Moabites. Then um, he's with Ruth coming from, from the Moabites. Then he is in, directly in the line of the Messiah. And it's interesting how Lot's own compromise seems to lead to sort of a compromised walk, their sexual immorality and things like that. But we see also just a lot of grace in Lot's life. And so uh, Lot is an interesting character, to say the least. But he is in there in the line of the Messiah. Number two is Judah. I love Judah's character. This is from Genesis 38, where most of you, I'm sure, have gone through this. But unless it's really fresh in my mind, it's actually kind of hard to keep track. But remember that Judah married a Canaanite woman named Shua. So that was her first, his first wife, and he had three sons by her. The first son was Er, for whom Judah gets a wife, Tamar. But Er does evil in the sight of the Lord, and he dies. Then he has a, a brother, Onan, who refuses to bring up descendants to his brother Er, so Onan dies. So Judah is down to one surviving son who's named Shelah, but Shelah is not in the line of the Messiah. So he has three sons, the first two die, and Judah's wife also dies. So Judah has lo- lost a lot here. So Judah then tells Tamar to remain, to, I'm sorry, he tells Tamar to remain a widow until Sheila is old enough to marry. And so what happens at next, both parties are at fault. Judah doesn't give his third son to Tamar. Tamar is, seems to be kind of waiting patiently for the third son to grow up, but on the 
So Judah kind of is at fault there. He sort of breaks his word. At the same time, I can kind of understand Judah because he's like, wow, this girl is really unlucky. She's like a black widow. My sons keep dying when they try to marry her and stuff. So I can understand his hesitation there, Judah's hesitation. So Tamar seizes the opportunity. She finds out where Judah is going. She seizes the opportunity and disguises herself as a harlot, as you all know. She gets pregnant by Judah, who he has to admit she has been more righteous than I. And then they have twins, one of whom is Perez, which is part, that's the son that would be part of the Messianic line. So it's Judah and Tamar that would end up having a baby that would be part of the Messianic line. So sexual immorality and deception plays a role here, but that's not the reason the Messiah came from Judah. The line of the Messiah came through Judah was because he would, he would step up and take ownership of the sins of the brother, of the brothers and serve as a representative trying to protect the whole family. That's what I love about Judah. Judah, he just seems to be over himself. He just doesn't seem to be trying to impress anybody. And he's done trying to promote himself. He's lost two sons and a wife. He's been through a lot. So when it comes time to, to deal with Joseph, jo, uh, Judah is the one that really steps up. So I love that about his, his character and, uh, and his, his really trying to help protect his father and his, his family in general. Number three is Rahab. You know the story with her. She also takes initiative to protect her family. Of course, there's sexual immorality involved, but again, God's grace overrules here. And by God's grace, Rahab enters the Messianic line. In Matthew 1.5, it says, Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab, Boaz begot Obed by Ruth, Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. So Rahab is a Gentile woman that enters the Messianic line, and we have Lot, a Gentile, as well. And then Ruth is the last one that we'll cover tonight, but you all know the story of Ruth. She seems to be a desperate outcast. She reminds me of Judah. She seems a lot like Judah. She just doesn't seem to be trying to impress people. Uh, I just love her character as well. She's, she's just a, a great lady in the Bible. And if you remember what happens at the end of, of the book of Ruth, you have Ruth and Boaz, and they're married, and the people and the elders say an interesting blessing, and I'd forgotten this was in here, but this is really interesting to me. It says, may your house be like the house of Perez, or Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. So it's interesting how in the book of Ruth, it references back to Judah and Tamar. So again, it says, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring which the Lord will give you from this young woman. So again, you have Boaz, who is Jewish, and then you have Ruth being a Gentile, Judah being Jewish, being the son of Jacob. I'm guessing Tamar is Gentile. I'm not 100% sure. It doesn't say it in Genesis that I know. So I'm guessing Tamar is, is probably Canaanite, like, like Judah's first wife was. But very interesting how how this actually references back to Judah and Tamar bringing Perez. And then in the book of Ruth, this is our last point, but in the book of Ruth, it lists the genealogy of David, including Salmon, which is Rahab's husband. And so that's very interesting as well. So I think I've been a Christian long enough now. I guess it's a good thing, but I've actually forgotten some of the things that I think I knew because I knew Tamar was in there somewhere 
you know, I'm sorry, not Tamar, uh, Rahab. I knew Rahab was in the line of the Messiah somehow. I just couldn't remember exactly how. But Rahab is the mother of Boaz. So when you put it all together, it's like, wow, Rahab the harlot is the mother of Boaz who would end up marrying Ruth and be, you know, grandparents or great-grandparents to, to David and all of that. So amazing how the Lord's grace would bring in Rahab and Ruth and uh, Judah and Lot and just all these people. And that's, that's only part of it. That's only leading up to David. There's more after that. So uh, anyway, just a, a neat way to see how the Word of God comes together there. And that is all just an illustration of what we're to do where it says in, in chapter 2, we're to dig deeper in the Word of God. And so I love it. You just can't get enough of it. So with that, at 7.30, uh, gentlemen, we'll be meeting in the corner in just a few minutes. Let's go ahead and go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you and praise you. We are so grateful for your word, Lord, how it instructs us. We are so grateful for the grace which you have provided to us. And like so many saints that have, that have gone before us, Lord, none were righteous and we're not righteous either except by your mercy and grace and the blood sacrifice of your son. And we thank you for it, Lord. And we just praise you this evening and pray for your blessing on everyone here, that you would give them safe travel home. Bless them the rest of their week, please. Watch over them and watch over their families, please. And bless, guide, and keep them. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all.